Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 90 and it's 1823. The small coastal harbour town of Port Elizabeth had been founded, but it still had no proper jetties, no lighthouse, nor even a breakwater. Passengers were forced to disembark precariously through the angry surf. And the place was described as an ugly, dirty and ill-scented, ill-built hamlet resembling, some said, the worst fishing villages on the English coast. It also was known as disorderly, drunken, and a place of immorality. Further up the coast, two separate towns had been founded on the Cowie River. Settlers on the west bank named their little hamlet Port Cowie, and those on the east called their equally small hamlet Port Francis, after Governor Lord Charles Somerset's daughter-in-law. These days we call that town Port Alfred. Many settlers who remained in Albany were now trading deep into the interior beyond the boundaries of the colony, and legally too. They bartered goods with amatkoza, cloth, iron utensils, beads, buttons and copper, were exchanged for cattle, hides, ivory and gum, often at the weekly market held in Grahamstown. Monitoring all of this were the men of the Cape Regiment, the Khoi Khoi or the Cape Mounted Rifles, as they became known. Lord Charles wanted his eldest son, Henry, to take over as officer commanding there. Nothing like a military command to accelerate your place in life, he thought. As you know, Henry was not the sharpest tool in the Somerset shed, and furthermore he could not be a commander of a regiment without first attaining the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, and he couldn't be promoted immediately because Lieutenant Colonel Fraser was already in charge. But Fraser was seriously ill, and died in October 1823. Henry, of course, was appointed commander, although without the necessary rank. Nepotism, corruption, poor governance, take your pick. Soon the portal to future financial happiness was opened still further because Governor Somerset's brother, Fitzroy Somerset, the future Lord Raglan, was now secretary to Wellington, the famous general. And Fitzroy returned from England and immediately anointed young Henry as a lieutenant-colonel. Nothing to see here. Move along, folks. Lord Charles committed a kind of breathtakingly self-serving action, which did not go unnoticed by both locals and the colonial office. Even as he justified his actions by intimating that the other officers lining up for the job were just not good enough, I have seen in this command Colonel Wilshire and Colonel Scott and all failed almost entirely. Wilshire saved Grahamstown when in Lely the war doctor attacked, so that was not just a lie by Somerset, it was an insult to Wilshire. Lord Charles, in his colonial administrator tone-deaf way, also wrote that Henry was the far better option because he had knowledge of the country and had precisely executed my views and system of defence. So Daddy put him in charge of a regiment. The system of defence he mentioned was pretty basic. It entailed constant patrols where the Khoi Khoi Cape soldiers would enter the thickets and flush out any Amakosa hiding within. The Cape Regiment's troops were the only ones with the skill and guts to do this dangerous job. Even the Trekboers preferred to stand back and watch once it came to fighting inside the Eastern Cape bush. These tactics were deployed on the 5th of December 1823 against Enrique San Macroma's kraal. But in doing so, the new Lieutenant Colonel Henry Somerset allowed his men to fire indiscriminately into Macroma's village, killing men, women and children, 19 in all. 
Then they took 7,000 head of cattle and drove them off to the new frontier town called Fort Beaufort. This constant killing of children as well as women and then taking all the cattle was not going to continue unanswered on this frontier. Fort Beaufort had been built just in time by Sir Rufain Duncan. The Amakosa chiefs like Makoma, Chali and Ngika lurked nearby, so the picturesque little town had become strategically important. Ngika, meanwhile, was still hiding out in the mountains near where Hogsback is today. Remember that Somerset had tried to have him kidnapped, despite the Amakosa chief being an ally, and so he had hidden himself away from the white. By 1823, one of Enrique's sons called Sandile was starting to emerge from childhood obscurity. Enrique had married a Tembu princess who became his great wife. The only problem was he didn't want to do this, but tradition determined that all Amatkoza chiefs took an Amatembu royal princess as a bride, and the first son of this union was usually the next chief. The Tembu princess in question was Sutu, and she had given birth to Sandile, who will feature in our story as the battles over the Eastern Cape developed in the coming decades. Sandile was destined to become the last independent sovereign of the Amararabi people, but his claim to sovereignty was going to be blighted by his father's disinterest in him. This has had historical repercussions. Ngika had initially informed his counsellors that he didn't need to marry an Amatembu princess to secure any future leader, he already had three principal sons, Makoma, Chali, and Anta. He didn't want to replace them with a latecomer, albeit for traditional reasons. His counsellors were shocked and surprised, and determined that he should have an heir in the traditional manner, and so they headed off to the Tembu, returning with a young woman called Sutu. Ngika went through the marriage ceremony, and then oral tradition says he had pretty much nothing to do with her after this. There's been a great deal of negative commentary about her, that she was not as attractive as the great beauty called Tutula, the woman, of course, who Enrique had snatched from his uncle in Tlambe, if you remember our story. She was truly beautiful, but her children mattered little compared to Sandile, who's going to grow up heir to the throne. The complications in the succession story were adding up. The British rather clumsy attempt at kidnapping Nika meant that he was now more amenable to the idea of peace talks with his uncle in Tlambe. The two Amararabi had been implacable enemies for decades. Now they had a mutual enemy. However, Ntlambe in 1823 was old and in poor health. He was no longer the powerful warrior, but he had also reconciled with his own estranged warrior son called Mdushani. Not far away, the 1820 settlers had been hit by a terrible flood in 1823, which was the last straw for many. By now, they'd faced down three successive failed harvests, and the indentured whites, who were retained by the rich landowners, defied Somerset's past system for whites and left for Cape Town, Grahamstown and Port Elizabeth. It's one of the ironies of our history that one of the earliest past systems instituted in South Africa was aimed at settlers, in an attempt at getting them to stay on their failing farms. Those who did stay behind after this exodus bought up or just took over the land of the departed and began to farm livestock instead of wheat or corn. But this also meant that the Trekboers, who'd roamed this area for three generations, were increasingly forced to seek greener pastures further afield. By now, reforms were being considered and enforced including extending civil liberties to all men and women, 
but they still had little relevance for the slaves of Cape Society and the Khoikhoi, who could be sued in the courts but still could not use the courts fully to sue anyone else. The trade in slaves was abolished across the British Empire in 1807, and abolitionists had been busy in southern Africa before that year, during that year, and after that year. The abolition of slavery itself, however, was a much slower process, starting really in 1823 and taking until 1838. As the British began to consider what to do about this odious system, they were thinking globally not just about South Africa. The anti-slavery movement was resisted in South Africa, however, for two main reasons. Firstly, it threatened to undermine the established order with fixed social patterns, behavior and economy, and secondly, its doctrine of equality was regarded as repugnant by most settlers and the Trikpurs. All men were not created equal, according to the Cape Colony's legal system of 1823. And so it was then that the missionary societies took up the cudgel of equality or lifted the scales of justice or mobilized the sentiment of the English voter. Eventually, the authorities began to relent. On the 18th of March, 1823, Lord Charles Somerset issued a proclamation designed to facilitate the admission of slaves into the Christian church and to allow their marriage by Christian rights in a court of law. He also ordered that slaves should receive proper food and clothing, and he limited their working hours. Somerset further restricted the severity and frequency of punishments and ordered slave owners to stop what he called their frivolous complaints. You'd imagine that his technocrat minders in Britain would congratulate him for this foresight, but they didn't. What Somerset was really doing was staving off a more comprehensive program of anti-slavery. At least, that's what most historians believe. He'd stolen a march on the English humanitarians of the day by deflecting laws that would have meant perhaps a complete ban on slavery itself. Somerset had been toying with the idea of emancipating slave children at birth, but eventually decided against it. Back in England, the government was preparing something known as an Order in Council, and Somerset launched his proclamation quickly to avoid what Lord Bathurst was planning. Bathurst, in turn, treated the proclamation as an act of evasion, and this was going to reverberate for many years hence. Once Somerset departed, which we'll hear about in our next podcast or two, his successor was going to promulgate a whole new set of anti-slavery rules in 1826 that pretty much set off what is known as the Great Trek. The colonial office has records showing that as early as 1820, however, they had decided that British settlers on the Cape Eastern frontier would have to do without their slaves and were planning for this eventuality. Somerset's main expectation, at least it's what he said he expected when he launched his reforms in 1823, was that his initiative would stimulate the Christianization of slaves. It didn't really work out that way. Then something else began to stir in the depths of the Cape public life, and this also unsettled what were known as the old Tories, and eventually destroyed the autocracy that characterized government in South Africa. It's quite a story, and goes like this. The 1820 settlers had left England in the era of Peterloo, Richard Carlyle and what were known as the Six Acts. A quick word is required to explain a few things. The Peterloo Massacre took place at St. Peter's Field, Manchester in England on Monday the 16th of August 1819. Fifteen people died when cavalry charged into a crowd of around 60,000 
who had gathered to demand the reform of parliamentary representation. Following this killing, a wave of protests swept across England and local magistrates appealed for help. The UK Parliament then passed what were known as the Six Acts. These were designed to censor newspapers, to prevent large meetings and to reduce armed insurrection. The Six Acts were an attempt at suppressing the freedom of speech because the government said those freedoms had led to violence. The truth is, these laws were not really enforced. The settlers who arrived were steeped in the debates of the day for and against these freedoms. The Six Acts were hated by reformers. Somerset had been under constant pressure by the settlers to prove that he was on their side, and one of their demands was for their own voice. Somerset now needed allies locally because of his nefarious actions, and also because his financial policy in the Cape had brought him into disfavour at Downing Street. By now, Thomas Pringle, that Scots lad who'd been an editor in the UK, then travelled to his farm in the Brankies Hoogte with the other Scotsman, had taken up his appointment at the SA Public Library. A man of letters, Pringle then invited a fellow Scot called John Fairburn to help found a school to promote English language and literature in South Africa. It was to be known as the Classical and Commercial Academy. They were joined by a Dutch Reformed clergyman and educator called Abraham Forer. In January 1823, Pringle and Forer applied for permission to publish a monthly periodical and promised to avoid the discussion of all controversial or agitating topics. Somerset refused the request and wrote to the Secretary of State, Earl of Bathurst, calling Pringle an errant dissenter. Not to be denied, a printer who just arrived at the Cape by the name of George Gregg then applied for permission to publish a non-political literary and commercial magazine. But Somerset said, Niet, once more, nope, nine, near. The only active printing press in the colony in 1823, apart from the church, was to be found in the castle, and from there emanated the sober columns of the Government Gazette. I mean, hold the front page. That publication was so dry, you'd need eye lube to read it. Thomas Pringle and the Reverend Abraham Forder wanted to produce their monthly magazine, alternately in English and Dutch, to enlighten South Africa, they said. Somerset opposed both schemes, but our friend Mr. Gregg was not to be denied. These men of letters were playing a long game. They knew that the governor was in a spot of bother because commissioners of an inquiry were on their way due to arrive in the Cape in July 1823. And when they arrived, these men of letters quickly approached the commissioners and through them approached the colonial office. And through the office, Pringle and Fora received permission to publish their journal and date script. Meanwhile, George Gregg had hatched his own plans for a newspaper. Pringle and Forer were idealists. Gregg was a businessman. When Gregg arrived in the Cape in March 1823, he focused on becoming a publisher. His first act was to open a general dealer at Number 1 Long Market Street in Cape Town, from where he traded books, stationery and household goods. He lived frugally and used profits from his venture to launch a printing business. Pringle and Fora had not printed their journal and Tateskrift when they heard shattering news. The Edinburgh school Greg had stolen their thunder and had figured out that Somerset's anti-publishing law had a loophole. He'd forbidden unlicensed magazines, but not newspapers. So Greg decided to launch his paper without permission 
and less than a month after Pringle and Fora heard they'd actually been granted permission to publish their magazine, Greg published his prospectus for a weekly newspaper called The South African Commercial Advertiser. And this, folks, was the first proper newspaper printed in Southern Africa. But if you look further afield, across the Southern African region and beyond, the first independent newspaper was published in Mauritius in 1773. It went by the remarkable name of Annonce Affiche à la vie diverse pour les colonies des Îles de France et le Bourbon, or Advertisements, Posters and Miscellaneous Notices for the Colonies of the Isles of France and Bourbon, i.e. Mauritius and Réunion. Greg, back in Cape Town, was a canny operator. He also sent his prospectus directly to Somerset, referring to himself in somewhat groveling terms as the governor's most obedient, very humble servant. But he didn't ask permission to publish. He bluntly told Somerset that he was going to publish and he was going to write about matters that did not affect policy or administration in the government of the colony. Fat chance. And so the South African Commercial Advertiser Prospectus of 20th of December 1823 revealed that it was focused on publishing advertising and business transactions, promoting trade and commerce, and improving agriculture. Greg edited the first two editions himself, then invited Pringle and Fairburn to take over what is really a very difficult job. The South African Commercial Advertiser appeared on the streets of Cape Town on the 7th of January 1824 after being printed on a wooden missionary press borrowed from Dr. Philip of the London Missionary Society. It was an eight-page paper. Four of the pages were advertisements. The South African Commercial Advertiser was an unmitigated success. The English trading community bought it in droves. It provided proper information not filtered by government or Somerset. It had local news and it contained commercial information. They would go on to print 17 more issues before the Cape government shut them down. However, all was not lost, dear listener, because the colonial secretary had got involved and had now given permission for Pringle and Fora's journal and alternately the Statskrift in March 1824 to go ahead. Pringle then made the mistake of publishing the views of the 1820 settlers about the governor, which were not favourable to put it mildly, and his journal was shut down two months later. Meanwhile, Somerset, in a debauched moment of bitterness, used his social influence to ruin Fairburn's new classical and commercial academy, saying he was teaching the most disgusting principles of republicanism. Then he threatened to have Pringle and Fairburn's Literary and Scientific Society declared an illegal assembly. Greg began reporting on Somerset's legal problems, and the governor ordered him to stop writing about this and submit to censorship. When Greg refused, our very Lord Charles gave him a month to leave the Cape for good. Greg was tough, but he had to go, and yet, before departing, he published something called The Facts relating to the suppression of his paper. Then he set off for London. Somerset seized Greg's type and press and gave it to his trusted minion by the name of Mr. Bridekirk, who'd brought out an odious rag known as the Essay Chronicle. This estimable organ of government opinion perished of inanition in the following year, according to historian Eric Walker. Inanition? 
That's a new insult to remember. It means exhaustion caused by lack of nourishment or a lack of mental or spiritual vigor and enthusiasm. As in, she was thinking that old age bred indignation. Let's move along to other matters in 1823. From here onwards, fortunes in the thinly populated and straggling Cape Colony were governed by two main factors, poverty and the increasing interest taken in its affairs by the imperial government and the British public. The arrival of the Commission of Inquiry was supposed to probe poverty, but it turned quite swiftly into an investigation into how things were being administered at the Cape of Good Hope. Somerset's days as governor were therefore numbered. More about Somerset's fate in upcoming episodes. But next episode, we deal with matters in 1824, including the arrival of a party of English ivory hunters and traders at a place that was known as Port Natal. And watching these men were spies reporting back to Shaka. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. If you have the time, it helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at deslatham. Until next, au revoir.